I'm Adaena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. For today's show, I went to the Microsoft Alumni event hosted at Microsoft in Redmond. And at this event, I met with numerous bright people, both former and current employees. And one of them was Andrea Taylor, current CEO of the Birmingham Museum. Andrea comes from an interesting background, as when she was very young, she witnessed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech on the National Mall. And this event had a positive impact in her life. And we talked about the role that having a background in civil rights has played throughout her various positions in her career, including at Microsoft. Andrea also gave an insight to her trajectory and the motivation for deciding to lead the Birmingham Museum and her work on preserving the history of the United States and the civil rights movement. Andrea also explained the initiatives that she worked on while she was at Microsoft to make technology accessible to underprivileged people. We also talked about diversity and the types of activities that can help improve it in the technology field. I really enjoyed talking to Andrea, and through sharing her experiences, she helps others be more open and think about people from other backgrounds. If you like the show, please rate on iTunes or send me a tweet at Tech Women Show. I'm here at the Microsoft alumni event in Redmond with Andrea Taylor, and I'm glad you were able to come to this event, so welcome. Thank you. So you're currently focused on civil rights as the CEO of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And before this, you've had a variety of roles, and I just was curious about some of the key moments that have led you to eventually this position. Well, in many ways, I feel as though all the things that I've done previously in my professional life and even as a young adult have led me to this moment that I'm uh, privileged really to be the CEO and president of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. The Institute was founded 25 years ago, almost 25 years ago, in 1992, uh, in Birmingham, which in many ways has become known as ground zero and a central, a central place uh, and force in the civil rights movement. And I was a young, um, young person, I was actually a teenager when um, the events in the 1960s were occurring in Birmingham, although I lived uh, north of, of Birmingham, I lived in, in Massachusetts and West Virginia, I was very aware, uh, keenly aware actually, of the civil rights movement. My family was involved um, in legal action and demonstration, and so I grew up in a household where social justice and equity were a part of our daily lives, and then I went on to college and, and uh, then had a number of positions in both education and media and philanthropy, but as an African-American, always uh, sensitive to and keenly um, 
aware about the need for uh, social justice efforts ongoing. And uh, each of the roles that I had in my career really helped to, to prepare me uh, for, for the role that I'm involved in now. Although I've never actually run a museum before, um, I have had a lot of experience in, in museum activity um, as a visitor, as a member, uh, as the child of a, an art professor, college professor. I visited a lot of museums in my lifetime, I think hundreds of museums actually, and continue to be. And when I was at Microsoft, I also um, was working with some of our museum partnerships. So we were talking with the 9-11 Museum. We had partnerships with the Field Museum in Chicago, with the Boston Museum of Science, and a number of institutions. We were working with children's museums, which is a fast-growing area of museum work for education for young people. So when I had the opportunity to think about uh, going to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, it just seemed to be a natural progression of the work that I had done already in, in philanthropy and media and in education. And it turns out that I'm using the skills from all of those fields in the current work that I'm involved in. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you grew up in during the time of the civil rights movement, and throughout your career, how have you seen work environments change? How, did you see some differences? Oh, very much so. Um, when I took my first uh, job post-college, so when I graduated from Boston University with a freshly minted degree in journalism, um, it was still somewhat, I, I also, I graduated in May, I got married in June, uh, and I went to work, I believe it was um, July or August of that same year, and it was still somewhat unusual for women to to want to be working and to be you know independent and involved in a career. But I, I had a job at the Boston Globe, so I was doing reporting, and it was it was very exciting. Um, and there weren't as many women as you might like to have seen in the newsroom, and there certainly weren't. I don't recall that there were any women editors at that point. In, Time. I could be wrong about that, but I'm not remembering any um, women editors. And so there was a bit of a, um, some groundbreaking going on there, and there certainly weren't very many African Americans uh, either in, in the newsroom. But I found that to be really a very interesting career. I was always curious about people and about communities and about how communities organize themselves and how they make change happen. And so I continued in that career for a year. Uh, and then my husband got an assignment to move to the West Coast. And so as was often the case, women, just, I abandoned my career at the, at the Globe and moved with my husband to the West Coast and found a job actually in banking. So I was doing work in banking and, and PR. And again, there weren't very many women. And then I found myself expecting the the first of what would be three children. And what I really noticed is that women working 
who were also parents were very challenged, particularly with childcare. There just wasn't much of a childcare system available unless you had a relative who was willing to move in or live nearby. And so ultimately I abandoned my career and in favor of trying to um, be a full-time parent. Somebody, if you have children, somebody has to parent them. And um, I decided that would be me. And I don't have any regrets about that, but I stopped working after my third child was born, and I stayed home with my children um, probably for about a decade, 10, 11 years, and gave them pretty much my full time and attention. And I kept, uh, I kept, in, I was engaged with the community, so I stayed involved in various um, organizations that I thought were important. But um, it was very challenging trying to be a working parent, and I, I must say that I just made the decision that it was too complicated, and uh, I, I did not work for, for that period of time. And so when I decided to go back to work, I actually started my own business, and I had my own consulting business that I could work hours that were convenient to me. So I could take care of the children, I could take care of the business, I could be uh, involved in social functions um, as a partner to my spouse at the time who was a lawyer and had a very demanding schedule. And it kept me connected to issues that I cared about in human services and education and the arts and so on. Uh, and then through that volunteer activity, I was involved in philanthropy. And from as a, as a volunteer leader, I was on the board of the community foundation where I was living at the time. And serendipitously from that role, I was offered a job at a New York foundation. And at that point, I was getting a divorce. I needed a job. I had three children. And I took the job in New York. And the rest is history. It took me to New York and then ultimately across the country and eventually I was the director of a program that was global and had a chance to travel the world uh, in that regard. So what was the name of that program? So I was the director of media uh, projects and programs for the Ford Foundation which is a global philanthropy that's involved in uh, social justice issues and, and, and community change. And I was director of the media program, which was really about providing public education around human rights and civil rights and, and social activities all over the planet. It was a marvelous experience. And I had a chance to see change occurring in places like South Africa and the former Soviet Union in the Middle East, in um, Latin America. We had a global program, and I, I was a part of that and part of the funding uh, for many, many programs that I think had a real impact on, on policy and on, on community thinking about a variety of issues. Yeah. And when you look back um, 50 or 40 years, has the pace of change of civil rights slowed down or accelerated or kind of stayed the same? Well, civil rights is an issue that is always evolving. So there, there's still, there, there, there has been much progress, clearly, uh, in the civil rights movement uh, in this country and around the world over time. On the other hand, 
there are still many, many civil rights issues to be addressed. And in some cases, we see that we're going backwards. Uh, so, for example, in terms of voting rights in this country, we know that there, is, um, there have been threats to the Voting Rights Act uh, of 1964, and this is a problem. Uh, people are now, barriers, are artificial barriers are being imposed on individuals in, in many in poor communities and in communities of color that are preventing people from exercising their franchise. There are about 40 million people in this country who are not registered to vote. Uh, who million? 41 million. Yeah, it, there's a large number of people who, who are, for, for different reasons, not all related to civil rights, but some of the, the, the um, um, uh, deprivation has to do with the people's lack of access and f with uh, unreasonable uh, criteria for being for for registering to vote. So that's just one area where we see we're losing ground. There is also there are also challenges that I think everyone in the country is aware of in terms of race and community and law enforcement. And we see a, a, you know this uh, increasing and continuing number of deaths in communities uh, at the hands of police and law enforcement, so there are tensions there. So there's still quite a bit of work um, to do. And we know that immigrants are, face discrimination in Alabama and other communities. Um, Faith-based discrimination is still prevalent uh, against Muslims, for example. Uh, I, I was having a conversation earlier today with an activist here in the Puget Sound area, and he was talking about the difficulties that the Muslim community is facing um, around uh, the this area, we see the same thing in in Birmingham, Alabama. So there still is, there's a lot, we've made a lot of progress, but there still is a lot that needs to be addressed. And I think as long as you have humankind, there will be probably challenges to human rights and to civil rights that need to be preserved and protected. And so, the work that I'm doing now is really to to serve an institution that has an education function in that regard that can help people to know the history so hopefully it won't be repeated and also give them a context and strategies for maintaining and improving civil and human rights going forward. Yeah, and regarding this movements that we've seen happening, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement. What what are your thoughts on on this? Well, I'm very pleased to see the Black Lives Matter movement unfolding. It's a network uh, that is focused on trying to make clear and visible and consistently so the issues and challenges that we face in our communities and the inequities that exist in our communities. And like other movements in other eras, young people are at the forefront of that movement. We, we know that young people have made a difference over history, throughout history in terms of bringing about social change. Certainly the civil rights movement of the 1960s was an example of that. In Birmingham, for example, um, we celebrate every year the Children's March in uh, May of 1963, and this was a, a march that was really one of the turning points in the civil rights movement when the adults in the community felt that their lives and their livelihood would be threatened if they were to demonstrate. 
and so they were reluctant to get involved. Dr. King then decided to mobilize young people. So you had hundreds and hundreds of young people who, um, some in some cases, told their parents they were just going off to school, but then they went off to protest and demonstrate and march. And they were, um, they they made a, a difference as foot soldiers. And it was those young people who um, were victims of police. Uh, brutality in terms of the dogs that were unleashed on them, the hoses that were used to deter them, the um, the, the violence that and then the arrests that they endured, but their their courage and their action and their commitment to demonstrating and protesting against the, the discrimination in their communities really was a turning point in the civil rights movement and and helped to to take the strategy forward. So. I am in favor of young people getting involved. Uh, it's their future, and uh, they're going to have to live with the consequences of the current decisions, so they need to be involved. And one of the things that I think a place like the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute can have is to help, again, them to understand the history so that they can learn the lessons of that history and use whatever strategy and tactics from that history might help them in the present and uh, in the future. Yeah. And more related to your roles throughout your career, for example, at Microsoft, did you notice you were bringing those experiences that you had from personal or philosophical beliefs related to the civil rights movement and did that play an important role? Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that um, I think about is in terms of my experience here at Microsoft, we were also involved in programs that were really about empowerment and helping people to realize their full potential. In fact, when I came, the program that we were um, working on was called Unlimited Potential. And the idea was that everyone has the potential to be creative, to be productive and constructive and to contribute to society. Not everyone has the opportunity and the tools. And so the program that the uh, then community affairs group was focused on was really trying to bring that opportunity forward for particularly young people and for disadvantaged populations. And wanting to use the tools of technology and the innovative ways in which Microsoft was developing new products and services that could give people that that ability to be empowered and to, and to make a change. So learning how to work with um, organizations across the community and across the country and really building coalitions and partnerships to bring about change was very is is a useful um, and was and is a, a useful skill set uh, to have because once you can create a critical mass of people who are um, determined to make a difference. It's very empowering, and uh, that, that's really what I think probably the current citizenship program continues to maintain. How can you take the resources, distribute them in a way that it's impactful, and that it gives the largest number of people the greatest opportunity to make a difference? What were some of the, the resources that were being distributed? Was this in the 
2000s or this was my tenure at Microsoft to cover the period from 2006 to 2014. So we had a lot of um, technology that would enable people to work in non, mostly in nonprofit organizations that we were supporting, and also in. Um, disadvantaged communities that might not have access to the technology, but to, it was it involved a number of things. It involved uh, providing the the technology and software resource itself, particularly to organizations, so that they could be more efficient and effective in the use of the resources that they had. So we donated lots and lots of software, as I recall. We were donating something north of a hundred to two hundred million dollars worth of um, of software. In the United States? In the U.S. And then we were just, just, my territory was the U.S. and Canada, so I was focused on that, and we were doing the same thing in other regions around the world. We were also providing training to people so that they could learn how to use the technology effectively for um, community development, but also for employment because we see increasingly that in order to be a part of today's workforce, you need to have mastery of technology skills. And except for millennials who have grown up using technology since birth, um, there were a lot of people who hadn't had that experience, so they had to be trained, and it was a little harder for them to make that adjustment once they decided that they could learn and took that seriously, they managed to catch up, but it was harder for them. Were, th were those in-person trainings at the time? or It was a combination of in-person training and also online training, although I think it, it, it still is true that uh, for some learners, online instruction without a, a trainer, you know, a live person and an opportunity to interact with, a, with a, a teacher or an assistant can be very challenging. And so we had programs, one, for example, was something called Elevate America, and we made um, skills and certification training available to um, anyone across the country in a partnership with um, states that opted into the program. I think there were about 35 states out of 50 in the U.S. who participated, and we were trying to reach a minimum of a, min a million people. And we did reach a number of people who did the online training or worked in um, a, a group setting in a training center or community center and were able to get certification so that they could uh, be really workforce ready. And so those were the kinds of things that we were doing. We, we targeted um, in the Elevate America program, again, disadvantaged populations, women, young people, and there was also an Elevate America's Veterans program because at that point in time, the average age of a veteran, surprisingly to many, was 22 years old and they had served you know, one or two tours of duty. They had not um, necessarily had college education, come right out of high school, and um, then they were a veteran at age 22 and needed to go into the workforce and had to get the kind of uh, tech skills training that would allow them to be competitive. 
Because what they had was the military training during those years. Military training, which actually is a very good base for the technology training because they had the discipline, they knew how to focus, they had um, skills of being a part of a team and having their uh, colleagues depending on them, but they didn't have the specific technology skills training, which is what the Elevate America's Veterans Program did for them. And then once they got that training, again, they, they were very successful, uh, and I, I, I would imagine that Microsoft has continued uh, to focus on that program in some way through its hiring and, uh, you know, looking for people with the kind of discipline and success in the military that would be readily transferable with training uh, to, to the Microsoft workplace. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about course that you gave at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Yes. This one was uh, called New Media, Power, and Global Diversity. So how do you see these three concepts coming together now that technology has evolved a lot and, and even the CEO of Facebook is proposing free internet, free basics for the United States. So. Just well, we were ahead of our time, weren't we, in offering a course called Media, Power, and Global Diversity. And it was interesting. I was um, working at an organization called the Education Development Corporation when I was invited to a class at uh, the Graduate School of Education at Harvard to talk about media and its impact in a new media environment. And new media was the internet. And everyone was sort of discovering, this was 2004, I think, 2004, yeah. 2005. And it was just taking off. And really, most of the activity around the internet, believe it or not, was being used by the military. So the military was using the internet to train um, troops who were going to be deployed to the Middle East and other places. And it was just beginning to seep into the educational curriculum. And nobody really quite understood or knew of its power. And they really were skeptical, in, particularly in the academy, about how something like the internet would have any relevance um, in the classroom. And so we were working with young people who had an interest in education and education policy. And I remember that um, the classroom had a, um, it had access to the internet and students could actually bring their laptops to class and use them throughout, which was a big deal. There were only one or two classrooms on the campus, you know, that that had that capacity with wireless and so on. And it, wow, it, at, it, Harvard. at Harvard. Well, because but this was true in all of these schools. Yeah. It, I mean, it, now it seems ubiquitous. You can't imagine going into a classroom without having you know access to the internet and yeah. being encouraged to use it. But this was still a kind of novel idea, and it wasn't clear how it was going to affect pedagogy and curriculum. Um, but I remember as a, as a faculty, it was also um, a new way of teaching and learning for faculty members. And so we'd be having a discussion about an issue. And if you know there was any discrepancy, 
as we're having the conversation, I remember there was one young man, I can't recall his name, but I can see his face, and he would be the person who, in the middle of a discussion, he'd say, excuse me, Professor Taylor, I'm just reading from such and such a website, and here's the, you know, here's the thought of, you know, here's the latest information about whatever the topic was. And it was just, it was a very different way of teaching and learning, and it gave, it empowered the student and the, and the faculty, and so it was, um, it was an interesting experience, and now, of course, as I said, it's 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 not even it's not even an issue. I also remember we had a discussion about audiobooks in the class, and um, somehow audiobooks were just coming into fashion as well, and it was considered. Um, very not appropriate to be reading audiobooks. You should be reading, you know, hard copy books. And so I asked in one of the classes if any of the students, you know, had were reading audiobooks or listening to audiobooks, and nobody's hand went up. And then after the class was over, a few students came up and sheepishly said, well, you know, I listen to audiobooks, but I don't want anybody to know. So, wow. Why why do you think there was that? Uh, that I don't know. There was just something about, you know, listening as opposed to reading that was considered to be um not as effective. Retention rates wouldn't be as high. I, I don't know. It was just, or touching the book. It was just it was just a transition period. Now all forms of media are utilized in terms of teaching and learning. And um, there, but although I think there probably is still some challenge, I'm not in the classroom at the moment, but there probably are still challenges about how to best utilize the technology. Um, and one of the other issues that we addressed in that class was the issue of equity and recognizing that not every student um, and every classroom and every community would have access to the technology. And we spent a fair amount of time exploring and reminding ourselves and thinking about um, what, it mean, what it would mean if you were working with a community or a class that didn't have a computer in the home or didn't have access to, um, to the internet, that that would really, the, the discrepancy there is significant and could really hamper learning. And we still have that issue in some communities in this country. Not all communities have the tools that we take for granted. And so you can see how that kind of discrepancy would really disadvantage young people. Because they're coming to the same classroom, but from completely different Comple backgrounds. Completely different perspectives, and they don't have uh, access. The other issue that was clear is that um, you need to have a baseline of understanding uh, and knowledge about a range of issues to be uh, in a position to uh, analyze and utilize the Internet, because everything that's on the Internet is not fact-based. It's not... Um, it's it's not useful. It, you know, it, it's just it, it it may be irrelevant to the topic. Just because it's on the internet doesn't make it fact. Doesn't make it true. And so, you need it. You need to be broadly educated in order to make best use of that. And again, you can't take it for granted that all students coming into a classroom uh, would have that experience and that knowledge. And, and that they would have universal access. So we still have challenges, I think, in, in that regard. And I would imagine that um, you know, Harvard's 
teacher training program and other teacher training programs across the country are still grappling with the best ways to integrate technology into their curriculum, teaching, and learning. And that's also translating, for example, in people studying computer science or technology. I see it in the case that there are students that come from programming since they were uh, very young and then somebody completely new and then they might feel intimidated because they didn't program in high school and things like that and they end up dropping out cause, because they weren't exposed in their youth. And right now we are seeing there are not a lot of Hispanics in tech or African-American. So I, I was wondering if you had any ideas or thoughts on what it can take to bring that diversity to the tech community. What seems to be clear is that once given the opportunity, people know how to respond and they can in fact learn. And so I think the the challenge is to find as many ways to introduce these opportunities into the community um, for girls, you know, for people of color, uh, for people who may not come from a uh, tradition of STEM-related subjects, but if you give people the opportunity, they, they know what to do. So, you know, there are groups like Black Girls Code, there's code.org, which Microsoft has been so instrumental in um, developing. There are, you know, folks here like Kevin Wang who have promoted, you know, learning to code and using technology. And there also are real economic incentives because we know that so many of the jobs in today's workplace require these skills. If you master those skills, you can find employment and you then can get into a professional track where you will have on-the-job training and can continue to sort of move your way through, through a career and um, through an employment uh, ladder. So I think it's, it's important that those in the community who do know uh, about the importance of, of this kind of opportunity become real advocates to make sure that those opportunities are equally available uh, in, in the schools and in after-school programs. One of the things that we worked on very diligently um, when I was at Microsoft, and again, I'm sure it continues, is to work with after-school programs where a lot of children are going to programs that are supplementing their, their traditional school day and this kind of learning lends itself well to an after-school program environment. So the Boys and Girls Clubs, the um, Year Up, summer camps, you know, various youth training programs. And then once young people are exposed to it, then they're more likely to gravitate to those programs in their regular, um, their regular school program. But, you know, it really should be available equally to all because today's workplace requires that you have a baseline of skills and every young person really has the right to be exposed to that and to have that training so that they'll have um, the opportunity to be successful in their career. The other piece that I think is interesting, I'm uh, a grandmother of five and I think about my grandchildren and you know the, the research suggests that at age 10, they're ex by age 10, they're going to be looking at careers that don't even exist now. 
And yet, you know, and they're probably going to have eight to ten different careers during their working life. And much of the underlying base of those careers will be, will require technology skills. So it's really important uh, for for the young people to have this kind of training, so that the and and also to have the critical thinking skills that go along with that, so that they'll be able to adapt and be flexible in a world of work that no one can even articulate and envision now, except that there will be a world of work and it'll be different than what it is today. So you want to prepare young people um, for that flexibility and, and to also take advantage of the opportunities and to be creative and creators of that new opportunity. They need to be producers as well as consumers uh, of the media. And we've heard that before, but I think it becomes it becomes ever increasingly the case going forward that if they can't also produce and not just consume, they will be left behind. And they may not live in a world that they want to live in or any of the rest of us want to live in. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it as well. And all the best to you and your career here at Microsoft. Thank you. Thank you.